11 and finish that chapter, verses 37 through 54. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that Jesus had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have. Then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, It shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we always are thankful for your word, and we always need and request that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We're going to learn this morning, Lord, that your word is powerful, that it's alive, that it is enabling and strengthening. We want it to be all of these things to our hearts and more. And when it's all done, Lord, we want to know that we've seen a picture or a portrait of Jesus Christ that we have insight into His character, wisdom about His grace and mercy. Ours is not so much an intellectual pursuit as it is an intimate pursuit. Draw us into an intimate relationship, deeper and deeper, closer and closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and those who agreed said, Amen. Religious rituals are becoming more popular among Christians. Ash Wednesday provides a good example. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of what is called Lent. Lent simply means to lengthen, 
And it refers to the lengthening of the days of the year leading up to Easter. Lent is the 40 days prior to Easter Sunday. During Lent, people are asked to give up certain things as a sign of repentance and a desire for renewal. Counting backwards and not counting Sundays, Lent always begins on a Wednesday. It is Ash Wednesday because those observing it have ashes placed upon their foreheads, usually in the form of a cross. Those ashes are supposed to be the byproduct of burning the previous year's palm leaves. The palm leaves are left over from another ritual, that of bringing palm leaves to church on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. While many will tell you that Lent and Ash Wednesday were celebrated by the first followers of Jesus, they are not in the Bible and you can't find them in church history until about the fourth century. Still, it grew as a religious ritual, especially among Roman Catholics. With the Reformation of the 16th century, many Protestant Christians abandoned the practice of Ash Wednesday. In recent years, however, Protestant churches have begun to celebrate it again. According to USA Today, and I quote, millions of Catholics, Lutherans, Episcopalians, and a growing number of evangelical Protestants attend Ash Wednesday services. Religious rituals like Ash Wednesday are becoming more popular among Christians. What do we think about religious rituals? I can tell you what Jesus thought about one religious ritual. The Pharisees performed a ritual hand washing before every meal. It wasn't a soap and water affair. It wasn't even about personal hygiene. It was a symbolic ritual of pouring water over your hands in a prescribed manner to cleanse you from what was considered spiritual dirt. Out in the world, you would come into contact with people who were defiled by sin. Ritual hand washing symbolized that you were being cleansed from having come into contact with them. It might help if I put this in simpler childlike terms. How many of you remember getting cooties on the playground? You remember cooties? The Pharisees thought that they got cooties out in the marketplaces. Ritual hand washing got rid of spiritual cooties. Now Jesus purposely refused to participate in ritual hand washing. His comments leave no doubt in your mind what he thought of it. He illustrated his comments by using images from the graveyard. He considered those practicing the ritual to be spiritually dead. You'll need to look at religious rituals like Ash Wednesday one at a time to determine your participation. Jesus' insightful comments about ritual hand washing will give you some guidelines to follow. We'll see Jesus explain two things. Number one, rituals are unmarked graves that you should avoid. And number two, rules are grave markers that you should abandon. First of all, in verses 37 through 44, rituals are unmarked graves that you should avoid. If ever anybody had cooties and needed a ritual hand washing, it would have been Jesus. He had been coming into contact with and touching all manner of sinners and defiled persons. The sick, the demon possessed, even the dead. Instead, you read in verse 37, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, 
he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, again, it wasn't that he didn't wash his hands with soap and water. This was a ritual hand washing, and it was performed in a very prescribed manner. I didn't want to read the whole rule to you, but uh, water was poured over each hand, and if the water went too far up the wrist, past the wrist, then defilement from the forearm was falling back down on the hand, and you would have to start over again. Uh, and it wasn't about dirt or disease or, you know, Purell or anything like that. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was just an outward ritual. Their hands were already clean and ready for dinner. This was a spiritual thing. The symbolic expression of washing away impurity from one's hands dated back to the book of Exodus. Moses was commanded to make a brass wash basin. It's called sometimes the laver or the laver of brass and to place it at the entrance to the altar area of the tabernacle so that the priests could wash their hands before approaching the altar to offer sacrifices. The washing of their hands was a symbol of their purity to offer sacrifice before the Lord. Now I tell you that because most religious rituals, even among Christians, do have some connection to the Bible. And the Jews of the first century could point to this connection in the book of Exodus. Still, Jesus refused to engage in ritual hand washing. A connection to the Bible is not a commandment, nor does it give you the freedom to make up rituals as you see fit. You have to stretch things pretty far, actually, to justify most rituals. When Jesus refused to wash before dinner, he knew what he was not doing. He avoided the ritual hand washing on purpose. Among other things, it was to give you and I guidelines to apply when dealing with such rituals. And so in verse 39, then the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness, foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Now, one of the things that I absolutely love about Jesus is how absolutely simple he makes things. You can't think of a better, simpler illustration than this. They were just about to recline and eat. And so he began with an illustration from the table that was set in front of them. No one washes the outside of a cup or a dish leaving the inside filthy. No one does that on purpose. You know what I'm talking about. You have some kind of, you know, liver and onions. Maybe you do, but anyway, you have liver and onions. And uh, guests over and say, oh, leave the dishes. We'll get them in the morning. You know, man, that stuff is nuclear by the morning. I mean, there's certain things that just, especially those Pyrex dishes, you know, when they when you make... Uh, you know, uh, uh, nachos or something, the cheese just, it becomes part of the fabric of the dish. You have to nail, uh, you, you chisel that stuff off. And so, you know, you, nobody takes their dish in the morning and says, oh, I forgot to wash the dishes, flips it over, washes the bottom and puts it away dirty and then serves dinner on it the next day. Maybe if you're camping, but not, not at home. <laughs> I mean, imagine the mold and the spores that are growing on that thing and all that. You know, nobody does that. And so Jesus says, performing ritual hand washing is just like that. 
You're cleaning the outside of your physical body while the inward part, the spiritual person, is full of greed and wickedness. And so guideline number one for rituals is that God is interested in relationship, not ritual. He's interested in what is inside you. You can't simply go through the motions of a religious ritual and think it will have any effect on your heart, on what's inside. Rituals can therefore be dangerous. They can be performed formally with no thought given to them at all. You memorize the movements and what I would call the mumblings while your heart remains far from God. I've seen religious rituals in the Christian tradition and outside the Christian tradition where it's just that. It's certain movements and just a bunch of mumbling and you can't really figure out what's going on. And it's a matter of memorization of movement and mumbling so that you can be doing other things while you're going through these rituals. So they're dangerous. Why then are so many believers being attracted to rituals? Now, I have to pause for a minute. You may not believe me. You may think, oh, Gene, you know, you're making that up. Nobody's attracted to rituals. But outside of the confines of our little church here, there is a movement among evangelical Christianity towards more of a ritual Christianity. People are rediscovering rituals as a way of bringing new life into their worship. I was surprised. I was at a meeting not too long ago with a group of pastors and somebody was asking about Ash Wednesday. Every year somebody, well, what's Ash Wednesday all about? And then somebody said, well, uh, how many of our Protestant churches are celebrating Ash Wednesday? And I was just about to say none of them. But I kept my place and I found out that a lot of them are and that they're rediscovering this as a, in, on their spiritual walk. I quoted from USA Today and I'm aware of some other things that are happening in the Christian realm where Christians are seeking out new rituals, new ways of worshiping God that, that bring back some of these old ideas. And so why is that? Well, at first the ritual does seem meaningful. Someone explains that there's a biblical connection, at slight though it may be, and you experience it as a part of your relationship with God. You're touched by it. You're moved by it. It's something different. But over time, it becomes empty and hollow. It becomes movements and mumblings. Maybe not even in your generation, but certainly in the next generation as you try to pass down a ritual that's based on the Bible but not in the Bible. And, and you see it all the time in the children of people uh, who are ritualistic. They know the words, they know uh, the walk, but they, they're not really grabbed by it. They're, there's nothing happening in their heart. And so Jesus now, he wants to continue this subject, but he does it by introducing another ritual or actually something they had made into a ritual, giving and tithing. Verse 41, rather... Give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. This is kind of a transition. He just told them God's interested in what's inside. And he said, so rather than this ritual hand washing, give uh, what's inside of you. Be a genuine person. Give of yourself. And that reminds him of what they had done to the Lord's commandments about tithing. So he says in verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, you give 10%, of mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. 
Now, by the way, the word woe here is used in the sense of concern for their well-being. Jesus was not condemning them. He was warning them. Now, the Old Testament gave specific commands about giving and tithing. And that's why Jesus says, these you ought to have done. They were not really rituals, but the Pharisees had turned them into rituals by adding to them their own traditions. Tithe or the 10%, they had added giving 10% by counting out 10% of their kitchen spices. So, I mean, think of this. We run into each other in Save Mart this afternoon, and we're out of oregano, and so we buy oregano, and I go home. Imagine taking the oregano. I'm telling you right now, you're going to buy a very small bottle of oregano after this, because you take your oregano, you pour it out, and you begin to count out the leaves that are in there, the little specks of oregano. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me, one for God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me. One, oh, and then they're all over the place, you know, because you breathe and you start all over again. These guys were into extreme tithing. We've joked about this before, but this would be their reality show, extreme tithing. And one week they'd, you know, it would pit two Pharisees against each other and you'd go into their house to see who had the most extreme tithing. And one week the guy tithing oregano would win. And then he would be the returning champion for the next week. And the other guy would have to come up with a more extreme way to tithe than, you know, the guy before him. And, and, and it would go on to the championship round. And it sounds funny, but, and it is funny, but that's exactly what these guys did. They were taking tithing to an extreme. They were commanded to tithe, but they practiced extreme tithing, making it into a ritual And the ritual had no positive effect. If anything, it had a negative effect. They thought they were spiritual by tithing spices, all the while they were overlooking what God really wanted, justice and the love of God. And so guideline number two for rituals is that taking even good things to extremes does not make you more spiritual. You can't improve upon simple obedience to God's word. Jesus had one more guideline about rituals. It's in verses 43 and 44. Excuse me. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. The best seats in the synagogue were those reserved for people who seemed the most spiritual. And they were seats that were in the front. And they weren't just in the front. They were on the platform facing the audience. There are some churches that still do this, some groups that still do this. I've seen that where, you know, I I would be, say, in, in our church, I'd be standing here like I am right now teaching. And behind me, there would be these throne like chairs lined up. And all of our elders and deacons would be sitting there. Typically, they would be, you know, trying to act reverent and uh, making points and maybe occasionally whispering to one another about, you know, taking some notes and stuff. Now, the reason, a couple of reasons we don't do this. One, our elders and deacons wouldn't do that. They would be shooting spitwads at me and (laughs) making faces and those kinds of things. And and, uh, so we just couldn't do that. Uh, and, and secondly, that's just weird. I mean, think about it. Think about somebody sitting behind me now and how weird that is, you know. 
Are they going to rush me when I say something they don't like? Are they gonna, writing down your name? I saw you nodding. I'm going to be calling you this afternoon. Okay, you know, and maybe that's what it's all about, but I don't know. So these guys would be sitting up there. Now, because they were in these best seats for all to see, they would be recognized in the marketplaces. And just like today, people are no different. The people would come up to them and ask them, about spiritual matters, ask them for answers or for advice. And so it was a way for them of promoting themselves or being promoted as the spiritual leaders. We're the ones you want to talk to. So when we're out in the marketplace walking around, uh, feel free, come on up. We'll answer your questions. We will give you spiritual advice. Now, Jesus had an entirely different perspective of them. He said they were like graves which are not seen. The graves in New Testament times were often caverns or hewn out of rocks or hillsides. You could walk by one or over one without even knowing you had done so. Coming into even slight contact with an unmarked grave was one of the things that the Pharisees said made you unclean. There's all kinds of rules in the Old Testament about the priest and, and others not touching dead bodies and how it makes you ceremonially unclean. And so the, the Pharisees, you know, they were real big on this, that if you came anywhere near a grave or walked over a grave or near one, then you were unclean and had to go through ritual washings of different kinds. Now, Jesus described the Pharisees as unmarked graves. Here they were practicing this ritual hand washing to remove the defilement of coming into contact with sinners. Jesus said it was sinners who are being defiled by coming into contact with them. They're the defilement because of their ritual behavior. They were moving people away from God rather than drawing them closer to God. And so guideline number three for rituals is that they often have the very opposite effect upon those who practice them. Instead of drawing you into a closer relationship with God, rituals build barriers between you and God and between you and others. Again, since it is the, you know, we just had Ash Wednesday a couple of days ago. Uh, it's a perfect illustration of this point. What happens just before Ash Wednesday? Mardi Gras, which is Fat Tuesday. Now, do you know what that's all about? You indulge yourself in everything you're going to give up for the next 40 days. You just go crazy. And, and I mean, it's getting to where you can't even watch television anymore, where they're showing the scenes from Mardi Gras in New Orleans because of all the debauched behavior that's going on. And so I'm not saying all of those people give up anything for them. It's just a big party. But that's the, the, the origin of it is that, OK, if I'm going to give up whatever it is for the next 40 days, I'm going to get my fill of it the day before right up till midnight. And that is simply human nature. And that's why rituals are wrong because you always find a way to do it in a formal way that has no change in the heart and so we want to be very careful about them rituals can be dangerous they may not start out that way but they almost always end up that way christians are being attracted to them hoping to experience greater spiritual life but rituals can leave you spiritually dead i'm very wary of the renewed popularity of ritual among christians I think it's a Trojan horse that will eventually kill the joy of having a simple personal relationship with God. 
avoid rituals. They are not necessary. They can be deadly. At the very least, remember these guidelines that Jesus set forth. Now, in his last woe, Jesus included the scribes along with the Pharisees. They got offended. It's good that they were because we learn, number two, verses 45 through 54, rules are grave markers that you should abandon. The scribes, also known as lawyers, were Pharisees who were considered experts in interpreting God's law. They weren't lawyers in the sense of, that we think. They were men who interpreted and who studied and interpreted God's law. All lawyers were Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were lawyers. And so the lawyers, the scribes, were like super Pharisees. They were the, the, the really smart, deep-thinking Pharisees. The scribes had added six thousand rules to God's law, 10 commandments, 6,000 rules to try to keep them and understand them. For example, you know that the fourth commandment instructed the Jews to do no work on the Sabbath day. The scribes had added 39 classifications of work and each classification had endless subcategories. They said that carrying anything equal to or heavier than a dried fig was work. It was therefore permissible to carry something that weighed less than a dried fig on the Sabbath. But if you put the item down and then picked it up again, it was considered doubling its weight. And you couldn't do that. So let's say you're walking down, you're keeping the Sabbath, and you've got your dried fig. It's your lunch. And all of a sudden, you drop your dried fig. Somebody else is going to have to pick it up for you, or you're going to have to leave it there, or just kick it along. (laughs) Or I suppose you could get down on the ground and eat it on the ground. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there were rules about eating maybe eating on all fours was considered something in the sabbath now we laugh but after first service somebody told me this and i didn't believe it but i did i checked it i went home and pulled it up on the internet these sabbath rules are fantastic kenmore kenmore the appliance company they make a sabbath ready oven that has a feature that turns the oven off on the Sabbath. It disengages the oven on the Sabbath. You, can, you, pr- you program it according to the time and date. From sundown Friday through sundown Saturday, your oven won't work because you're not supposed to kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. And if you use your oven, whether it's electric or gas, it's considered kindling a fire. So the next time somebody is hammering you about keeping the Sabbath, ask them if they've got the latest Kenmore disengaging range because you know you might get up groggy one morning and not realize it's the sabbath and heat up some water for tea or press pot coffee and realize that you have kindled a fire on the sabbath and are gonna die and go to hell i guess i don't know so seriously i mean this is how radical this thing is now jesus compared scribes to grave markers We just saw that the graves in the first century were caverns or caves. Typically, they would have a stone door or some other stone covering. This door or covering would be whitewashed 
and otherwise decorated with ornaments to mark out the grave, letting you know there was death and defilement inside. You wouldn't want your kids going out playing and going into a tomb, you know, and that kind. So they were always clearly marked. Now, the scribes should be seen as grave markers. There was death and defilement inside their elaborate system of rules. They and their rules should be abandoned as far as Jesus was concerned. Then one of the lawyers, verse 45, answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Okay, woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. Now, I just mentioned these ridiculous rules regarding the weight of a dried fig or the kindling of a fire. And we laugh about it, but I want you to think for a moment that you are a first century Jew and you really, really, really want to honor God. And there are these smart guys that sit on the platform on the Sabbath day and they are all the time studying these scrolls and trying to interpret God's word. And they are telling you that this is how it's done. Don't carry anything heavier than a dried fig. Get your Kenmore disengaging range. These kinds of things. And I want you to think, rather than how funny it is, what an incredible burden it would be to try and even understand that there were 6,000 rules and many, many subcategories for the different rules and regulations. Everybody was breaking the Sabbath all of the time. And beyond that, think of how defeating it would be to know that on the day that you were to rest and give glory and honor to God and to worship God, that all you felt was disappointment and frustration and embarrassment because you had let God down over and over and over again all that day by doing work or bending over or kindling a fire or whatever it would be. Imagine the religious burden that that is. And you can get some feeling for why Jesus ain't going to wash his hands no more. Do you understand? I mean, this is serious stuff. We take things so lightly. It's like, okay, you want to do that? Go ahead. Celebrate that. Wow, what a great ritual. Oh, that's fantastic. Man, this is killer stuff. This kills people. It leads to death. It starts this whole process of ritual in a person's life and heart that draws them away from God, not closer to God. Are there no rules? Well, sure there are, but they are simple and they are internal rather than external. Love is the rule of your life. If you love God and love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need any other rule. You will do what is good and just and right from the motive of love. Outback Steakhouse has a slogan. Do you know what it is? No rules, just right. I have no idea what that has to do with cooking my steak medium well. I mean, what happens? The waiter comes here and says, how would you like your steak? No rules, just right. What does that mean? I mean, it's kind of catchy though. I like it. I'm using it. Because it touches upon what I'm saying. There are no rules to follow if you just do right. How do you do right? Dudley, somebody asked me to say that. They bet me I wouldn't say that. So, Don't ever bet me. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus gave you a simple formula. It's in verse 28 where he said, Hear the word of God and keep it. 
Let's see how that applies to us by looking at what Jesus next told the scribes. Woe to you, verse 47, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them and you build their tombs. The Old Testament reads like an obituary of persecuted prophets. God sent them with simple words for the people to hear and keep. The Jews persecuted and killed them. The scribes seemed as though they were honoring the dead prophets because they were digging deep into the word and coming up with these uh, categories and, and commentary. But by adding their own rules to the simple word of God, they killed the prophets all over again. Rather than just listening to what they said, they were killing it, adding their own testimony. Rules added to the word of God always kill its power. The word of God itself is alive and powerful. The best illustration of this, one that I've used before, and if you were at our beloved's banquet, Pastor John Miller used there, the encounter Jesus had with the man with the withered hand. It's a fantastic illustration of the power of the word of God. Here was a man with a withered hand, unable to use his hand, tucked in tight, couldn't move. Jesus looked at him and he said, stretch forth your hand and answer your phone. (laughs) It was the one thing he could not do. (laughs) It's the one thing you cannot do, but ought to. Okay, are we are we through with that now? Are we? My phone sounds better, but I don't have it with me. It was the one thing he could not do until he received the word of God. And then he was immediately strengthened to do it. God's word was God's enabling. I like what John said the other night. He said, if he could stretch forth his hand, he wouldn't be the man with the withered hand. And he wasn't. As soon as Jesus said, stretch forth your hand, he was enabled to do it. The man with the withered hand needed no rules or regulations to aid him in stretching forth his hand. Now, it sounds funny, but it's not. (laughs) Excuse me for a minute. Let me explain to the people who are only listening on the CD that there are cell phones going off all over the auditorium. I'm not being distracted. I'm just worried for people now. For the sense of tremendous embarrassment and isolation (laughs) that is coming into their hearts. Anyway, the man with the withered hand didn't need rules or regulations. And that sounds funny, but sometimes you and I, we don't put it in these terms, but we ought to. Something has withered in our lives. Typically, marriages. We're the man with the withered marriage. We're the woman with a withered marriage or job or relationship or, or whatever it is, health. Uh, and Jesus is saying, in the, let's take marriage for an example. Jesus might be saying to you, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And the first thing you and I want to do is go to the Christian bookstore and get a book of rules on how to do that. Because we don't understand it. We can't comprehend. It's too deep. It's it's so simple, it's deep. And so we want to get books. 
book after book after book, seminar after seminar, retreat after retreat. Now, I'm not against those things necessarily, but here's a, a caution. When Jesus says, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church, he's telling you to do something that he's empowering you to do. And you don't really need to be a genius to figure it out. What you need to do is be repentant. You need to repent of your sin and your selfishness. It was a quote I used uh, on Wednesday night or on Friday night at the Beloved's Banquet. I can't remember it fully, but it had to do with, you know, marriage isn't going to work until you first get a divorce. You have to divorce yourself and die to yourself and then your marriage will work. And so whatever it is that God is giving you in his word, it has the empowering for you to accomplish it. The truth is you and I don't believe that. I know we don't believe it because we keep buying books telling us how to do these things. And we, we set up rules and regulations and we check them off and we think that we're accomplishing God's word when we just need to return to a simpler state. Like when you were first saved. Many of you have this testimony that when you got saved, you were so excited about your relation with God, people could have told you anything and you believed that you could do it. And you could do it. And then you get all old and gnarly. Things get tough and, and you, you're, you're not sure how to accomplish things anymore. And so we want to return to that place where when Jesus speaks, we hear and obey. He's never going to tell you to do something he hasn't already empowered you to do. And the truth is we're looking outside the Bible. We're looking away from the Lord. We're looking to science, to psychology. We're looking to the secular world. We're trying to get insight and input from every place other than just walking by faith. So verse 49, Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, killed by his brother Cain, was the first martyred prophet. In the Jewish version of the Bible, Zechariah was the last of the martyred prophets. And so they were the bookends. They marked the career of the nation of Israel, killing its prophets. The generation Jesus was addressing was the most spiritually privileged generation up to that time. Jesus was with them, present on the earth. Of course, he was more than a prophet and much more than an apostle. He was the wisdom of God, the living word of God. They had the words of all the prophets up to that time. They had the words and witness of John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest among men. And they had Jesus himself speaking to them. And so now you understand how, since so much was being given to them, much would be required of them. In verse 49, Jesus said, some of them they will kill and persecute. He was looking into the future, to the book of Acts, and throughout the church age, to how his servants would continue to be persecuted and killed. Woe to you, lawyers, verse 52, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves. And those who were entering in, you hindered. I believe that Jesus is calling God's word the key to knowledge. The scribes had the key, but by adding to it, they made no use of it themselves, nor did they allow anyone else to use it. Imagine Ken, our building supervisor, comes up to you one Sunday and he says, I'm going to take a rare vacation 
and I need you to open up the church so that everyone can come and worship and hear the word of God. And you're excited. You think, sure, I can do that. I, I have a key and I open up my house. How hard could it be, really? And, uh, and, and so you want to be used by God. And so uh, Ken uh, takes off on vacation and, and he leaves you. He tells you where you can find the key. And you, you know, it's, maybe it's FedEx to you overnight. And uh, you, you, know, you open up this package. And on the key ring are 6,000 keys. Because there's 6,000 rules that were added to the word. So now you have 6,000 keys. And you think, wow, man, there's a lot going on at Calvary Chapel. I, I didn't realize that, you know, that they had that many doors. But you're still, you're okay with it. Until you realize that none of them are marked. That they all look exactly alike. And, and so you think, well, you know, how hard could this be? And so you come to church on Sunday morning. You think, I'll get there a little bit early. Instead of, you know, church starts at 8.15, so I'll get there at 8.00. Uh, you know, and, and you start and you realize that, man, I'm going to be here for a long time. And you get about 4,000 keys into it and you drop it. Your hands are like nubby and, you know, bleeding and stuff. And so you drop it. Luckily, it's not the Sabbath because you wouldn't be able to pick it back up. And it weighs more than a dried fig anyway. And you start all over again because you can't remember where you started from and where you ended up. That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, you want to you have these rules? That's what you're doing. No one can come into church and hear the word of God simply taught because you've got these keys that, and you're keeping, you know, the, you, you've got the one key and you're keeping all these other keys around it that you think are helping you, but they are hindering you. Now, it's a tragic fact of church history that its leaders often kept the word from God's people. Even though we have God's word, we can keep it from people in other more subtle ways. We keep it from them when we don't emphasize it by teaching it in a systematic way. I talk to people all the time who've been in church all their life and don't know. They've never heard certain portions of the Bible taught. They don't even know they exist because they, they're, they're not exposed to the word of God in that way. You keep it from people when you teach it in a way that portrays it as too difficult for the average person to comprehend. I consider it an absolute failure if people tell me that they couldn't understand the words that I was using, that I used a, a word that isn't in their vocabulary. It, it's, I just, I, then I have failed because they, they don't know what I'm talking about. You keep it from them when you talk about the word rather than reading through it and preaching from it. And that's typical as well, where, where the Bible, has, there's some basis in the Bible for what you're talking about, but really you're just giving a lecture about the Bible, your opinions about the Bible, rather than trying to struggle with the actual words themselves and say, this is what they have to mean. And letting people study it for themselves to see if they agree or disagree. And so we want to uh, be careful. We want to get the word out. Verse 53 and 4, as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently, cross-examining him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say so that they might accuse him. The scribes and Pharisees were comfortable with their burdensome external forms of religion. Their rituals and their rules had become barriers that kept God's word from reaching their own hearts. And maybe that's the point. Rituals and rules seem to be things that will draw you closer to God, but they are not. 
Rituals are barriers. Rules become burdens. Remember that. Christians are getting more and more interested in rituals and rules. You should avoid rituals. You should abandon rules. Instead, simply believe Jesus when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts by your word so that we would understand our natural human tendency to respond to ritual and to look for rules and that we would guard against that and want to have an intimate relationship with you, speaking with you, talking with you, walking with you, knowing you are there with us side by side, day and night, bearing a yoke with us, guiding and directing, that we would read your word and just believe that we can obey it because of the power of the words themselves, that the word would not be voided out by our uh, wanting to have something more explanatory than the words themselves. We want to be vibrant, excited Christians, Lord, that are finding victory in all the areas of life. And I think, Lord, the answer is really just in a return to basics, to a return to our foundation, to just believe by faith that the things you've told us we can do, we can do because you've told us. And so we thank you, Lord. As ritual and uh, all that becomes more prominent among Christians, I pray that we would guard ourselves, Lord. Look at them one at a time. When people want us to participate or partake of something, that we would really think about it. Even if it has a biblical connection, Lord, that we would seek to understand it from the guidelines that you've given. And know that there's nothing more that we actually need other than a personal relationship with you. And Lord, as far as rules, we just want to do right things. Help us, Lord, to be simple folk. Simply walking with you. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. Let's stand together. We'll close our service out with a chorus. Kind of to cement things in our hearts, set our hearts back on the Lord. As we do, you know that we always have one or two of our guys come forward. Uh, not to sit behind me or to shoot spitwads at me, but to just to be here available in case you would like prayer. We believe that God is on His throne and that prayer changes things, changes our hearts, brings us into a closer walk with Him. And so these guys would love to pray with you, pray for you. Maybe you're here today and you're not even a Christian. Uh, you're, a, you're, you're seeking the Lord. You're trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Why are these people happy? Some co-worker or family member invited you to church. And maybe you're here, you don't even, you're at the wrong church even. And, and, and you, you know, uh, your cell phone went off, but you're too embarrassed to answer it. And, and so whatever the situation, come forward. These guys will pray with you. They'll share with you how to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior so that your life can be changed for time and for eternity. May God bless and keep you. Love to see you guys on Wednesday morning. Love to see you again on Wednesday night. Should the Lord tarry and not come for his church before then. May God bless and keep you. Amen.